that would be super beneficial to everyone. Just like, you know, defining terms, right? Like anytime, mm -hmm. you know, um, I used to study philosophy and anytime you go into a paper, you kind of have to like start by defining your terms. And so I thought we could do kind of the same thing for our, for our level of training. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's, that's great. So Zoe kind of wants to go through the, the energy systems today because we kind of get a lot of questions about that. Um, and also, yeah, and I think it's important yeah. because if you work with me and you've been working with me for a while, you'll notice that certain blocks of training are meant to target specific energy zones. Um, you know, most specifically as... Um, although, you know, not everybody on this call or in microcosm is running an ultra, um, primarily if you're running on the trails, ultra distance and above, um, the energy systems are really important to you. The first one that's most important is the, is kind of your, you know, your aerobic base up into aerobic threshold. Um, that's going to be really, really important for ultra runners because you're running mostly slow because you're going for such a long time. Um, but there are other energy systems and we train those generally, at least for athletes that I work with, we work on these things kind of in reverse order, right? So like uh, closest to your event, the most important, the least important energy systems are going to be trained farthest away from your event because you don't utilize them as much. Um, and because like <clears throat> strengthening the base, like doing training the most generalized the most trainable, the most non-specific systems, that's kind of like improving your foundation. So it's, yeah. you know, going straight into speed work without honing the base just means that you're building something on unstable ground, metaphorically speaking. Like you want to have a better foundation because that's going to make that speed work more meaningful. If someone came right into training without the adequate aerobic base, and they did the best speed workout, like, you know, the most perfect, like concentrated speed block of their lives, it would be less meaningful just because they don't have the support of that aerobic system. So they're not getting as much out of it. And therefore they're not going to achieve the optimal results than if they had just like chilled out and done an aerobic base building period ahead of time. Yeah. And I think for a lot of newer athletes, that's why, you know, you have several weeks um, and depending on your background, maybe a month or two months of just easy running before you do anything else, um, at least anything longer than a 20 or 30 second long interval, um, even 15 seconds can be beneficial, but we don't do much more than that because we're creating the base. Um, but uh, yeah, I think we should probably start with defining what aerobic base is. I think that's kind of where you yeah. wanted to start. So you yeah. want to define that? So when you hear us talk about aerobic base or like aerobic effort, the effort that that correlates to is your easy effort, your all day effort. Um, that's the effort at which your body is primarily relying on burning fats rather than carbohydrates because it's like super chill and, you know, fats are can be broken down to sustain that level of energy. Right. And that's, um, that's because at the, at when you have a strong base and you're aerobic, you're working with the aerobic system, you have a lower heart rate. When you have a lower heart rate, you're going to burn predominantly fats. However, you do burn carbohydrates. There's always right. a mix. There's never just one oh, yeah. or the other. I think, and that's another kind of important, like overarching principle worth stressing is that your body doesn't give a single flying, uh, 
expletive about like energy systems essentially like it has no idea what aerobic is what lactate threshold like your body doesn't think in terms of systems that's just like how humans think so no matter what you're doing there's always going to be like gray areas right mm -hmm. so like whenever you're running at an aerobic effort like you're also you are utilizing other energy systems and you are use, utilizing other you know energy sources but we're just thinking of it like we call the systems after or we name the systems after the thing it primarily targets and that doesn't mean that we're excluding other systems or other energy sources it's always a mix right like the body is very nuanced it's very you know mm -hmm. it's even when you're sprinting you're using your aerobic system right so you're you know and when you're in your aerobic even when you're at aerobic effort obviously it's not that your body is like oh i'm gonna burn zero carbohydrates now it's just like i'm going to primarily burn fats so i think it, it is always important to like bring that level of nuance into the discussion as well. And to keep it kind of digestible or else we'll end up into a biology lesson yeah. on how, you know, <clears throat> on all of these different and, things. Yeah, I think also just to piggyback off that, when I first got into running, all of this stuff felt very uninteresting and very intimidating to me because I did not come from an athletic background. I didn't run track, cross country, like it, all these words were like somewhat meaningless to me. And if they all feel like word salad to you, like that's okay. Um, we just want to like be able to like kind of define terms so that we have a shared vocabulary. And so that people who are maybe newer to formalized training feel welcome in these discussions and know what we're talking about and don't feel like discluded from more technical conversations because, you know, A, like sports science is, is challenging and there's a lot more unknowns than knowns and that we just kind of want everyone to feel more included in this community. And I feel like a lot of our discussions revolve around these concepts. So we just want to kind of like broaden the tent of conversation so that everyone feels welcome and like they're knowledgeable and like have autonomy in their training. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, well said. I think we kind of covered aerobic base, but I feel like they're did you mention foundation? That... It's the foundation of your training. Like right. one of the reasons that at minimum 80% of your training is aerobic is because that is the most important energy system. Even if you were training to become an Olympic 400 meter sprinter, it would still be your most important system. Just because you want to be a faster athlete doesn't mean you can overlook aerobic training because it is absolutely the most integral system that we train. And it, it is the most integral because without your aerobic base, you don't have some of the fundamental parts of a i don't know like in it of a complete system that allow you to actually go out and run your specific event and have your endurance be sustainable the reason for that is because if because when you train aerobically and you create aerobic base you have a lot of slow twitch muscle fibers those muscle fibers get recruited those are the muscle fibers that don't break down as quickly they last a lot longer on the, you know, there are kind of fibers in the middle, but on the opposite kind of pole is the fast twitch muscle fiber that allows you to run really fast to do your strides and your hills and some parts of your interval training. But those fibers tend to break down really quickly. Um, so those aren't the ones that you're relying on to finish your event. And when you're walking, at unless the your end... event is a 100 meter dash, <laughs> correct. Not for ultra. Like runners. I think sometimes people yeah. think like, oh, I want to run a 5k. I need to get my fast. Like once again, unless you are literally an Olympic sprinter, 
our primary focus is going to be on those slow twitch muscle fibers. Exactly. But once again, like using thing, like when we focus on that higher intensity training and it recruits those faster twitch muscles that can help our slow twitch muscles go a little bit faster. So it's kind of like, not only are we raising the ceiling of our training, we're also bringing the floor up a little bit higher. Right, is it too soon to talk about economy? Because I think you just mentioned um, one of the important aspects. I guess aspects just to reiterate the benefits of um, aerobic training is that it improves your efficiency because your body pumps blood and oxygenates working muscles. And that only happens at aerobic. It only happens at the levels that we want in training at aerobic intensities. And easy aerobic running builds strength in the muscles, tendons, and bones. And I think that that's a really good point to get us to defining running economy. So TJ, yeah. what is running economy? Um, essentially, you know, running economy is your efficiency, how much you're putting in, um, and what you're getting out of that. So when we look at the certain pace per mile, uh, that you might define as easy economy would be using the least amount of oxygen possible to produce that output level. The more oxygen we're using, the less economical we are. And so therefore the less sustainable the effort is. Um, so it's like how much energy and how much oxygen does it take to elicit a specific output level in- With in the caveat being that your ability to take in oxygen is somewhat fixed because of the amount of air that is in the atmosphere and that you can breathe in, right? So the point is not to like make it so that you're taking in more air. It's like, it's like saying instead of if an athlete, you come in as a Hummer, right? Like if you're putting in 30 gallons of gas into the Hummer, you're not going to get very far, not very efficient. If the size of the gas tank doesn't really change, what we can change is the ability of the car to take that gas a little bit further and taking you from a Hummer to a Prius, right? Mm -hmm. Like the amount of fuel that you're taking in doesn't change, but what you're able to do with it does. And that's how I like to contextualize economy. Yeah. And I think that, that, that's a, that's a great way to do it. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, continue, um, you've, you've got it. Yeah, so essentially economy is the amount of energy that it takes to go a given pace, um, which means that economy is important, once again, at all intensities, whether you're sprinting um, or whether you're running very, very easily. And that's another thing that we see a lot, mm -hmm. like as athletes become fitter, the gap between their top end speed and their easy pace grows. Um, and I think that that's, you know, one of the most enjoyable things to see is that as your economy improves, your ability to run efficiently and comfortably slower improves, uh, which is not always what people expect when they're coming into training, like feel good, going slower, join microcosm. Um, not a very sexy tagline, but it's true. If you're unable to run comfortably slowly, a lot of times it's not because, oh, I'm just a fast twitch person and I need to go fast. It's because your body isn't efficient enough to find comfort going slow. Um, some of our best athletes can just totally rock a 13 minute mile. Um, and that's amazing. And that, and that doesn't mean that their top end isn't high. It's very high. It's just that they have a very big gap. And that's what we're always looking for in athletes is to grow that comfort gap. Like maybe you can run comfortably at a six minute mile and you can still rock a 13 minute mile on your easy days. It's being efficient enough that your body is comfortable within a wider spectrum of paces. Yeah, and I think very specifically for ultra runners, it's putting the least amount of effort in to elicit your easy effort pace or output level or that feeling. Um, that way, when you're out and competing in your specific event, 
um, you can go a lot further at that effort level because you have you're using less oxygen to produce those outputs, and that that's that's really critical because for us we're running at basically around aerobic threshold or below for many of these events, especially if you're doing you know 50 miles and above. Um, you know you're not running at an elevated heart rate, or you shouldn't really be. Um, most of the time, there are variables that might bring your heart rate up, like a nice long hill. Um, but in order to sustain these efforts, you have to have good economy because we don't want to waste en any energy out there. Any energy savings that we have are going to really help us, especially towards the end of these events. Um, and so to get there, we have to train these other energy systems. Uh, and the next one I think that's worth talking about is, is lactic threshold. What's, what's lactic threshold? Uh, so lactic threshold is the kind of the max effort that you can sustain for about an hour. Um, so that is going to be your tempo effort. We, I kind of define that um, and we do at like a, about an 8 out of 10 effort. Um, it's a really, really intense effort. Not very conversational at all. Maybe you can speak one sentence. Uh, I would say, yeah, would say you're, you're speaking not. in clipped sentences. Yeah. You shouldn't be totally breathless. Clipped sentences, and you should feel a bit of burn in your legs at that point. Yeah, but oh, it's like definitely. it's your hour effort. Mm -hmm. So it's like less intense than 10k, significantly harder than marathon effort. Yeah. What is uh? You have some notes here about lactic. Yeah. Uh, acid and, and muscle soreness. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that's, you know, once again, exercise science is an evolving uh, field. Uh, up until the 80s, people actually, and this is something that like, even when I was involved in sports as a, like when I did like volleyball and whatnot, um, there was a lot of misinformation out there about like what lactic acid is and what it does. Um, it used to be thought that lactic acid was a waste product of exercise and that it caused soreness in your legs. Uh, none of that is true, actually. Uh, it's not a waste product. It's actually an important metabolic precursor. So it helps, um, basically helps your body use glycogen better at intensity. So lactic is, lactate is not a negative thing. And so we need to move away in sports and our understanding of it as not, it's not the thing that makes your legs hurt. It's not the thing that makes you slow down. It is something that happens when your body's like, okay, I need to switch fuel sources at intensity. Um, and so, you know, just trying to do a little bit of like myth busting here because I think that's something that people don't understand um, a lot is that lactic acid doesn't like dissolve your muscles and make you sore. Um, your muscles are sore because you are ripping them apart uh, a little bit. <laughs> Very <laughs> um, literally. Yeah. And so lack lactate, something that we produce when we go above lactate threshold is not a negative thing and should not be necessarily avoided, but should be targeted like should have intent in running, right? Like if you go out and run a tempo on your easy days, you have just produced not a desirable training outcome for yourself. And let's just link that back to our aerobic base building and, and training at aerobic threshold and below. Why isn't that desirable if we're trying to create aerobic base? Right. Well, so essentially you're undermining. So you're at lactate threshold, you are functioning above an intensity level at which you have sufficient oxygen to properly oxygenate your muscles. So you're training your legs to function or you're training your body to be functioning at not an unimportant intensity, but an intensity that is not as 
important. Like it would be like, say you're studying for the ACT, right? You don't want to just study vocabulary to get the best ACT score, right? You want to train, you want to study more generally. Aerobic training would be like studying, you know, vocabulary, writing, science, and math. Each of these other systems is kind of like one section on the ACT. So if you go in too hard on one section, you're going to underperform on under sections rather than if you have a generalized approach. So if we're doing our hour-long run on a Tuesday at an effort level where you can barely speak one sentence and your legs are burning, we could probably make the assumption that you're close to around a lactic threshold and you might not be building some of the fundamental parts of your base that we need, like strong mitochondria, dense capillary beds, uh, slow twitch muscle fibers. We're going to be working at a heart rate that is primarily anaerobic and we're going to be burning primarily sugars. We're not going to be working on our fat burning metabolism at those rates. Uh, So it wouldn't be beneficial. It's also very difficult for the musculoskeletal system to handle runs of that intensity every single day. This is why we have to train easy. So it's nice that we can train easy and know we're getting so many benefits from that. Rather, we don't have to go hard all the time to become to become better. In fact, that would be very counterintuitive. Because if you're only training those top end systems without focusing on aerobic base building, once again, even though you might feel like you're going fast and you're like making progress, you're gonna plateau and you're gonna get injured a lot quicker and you're actually not gonna be achieving the same top end development as you would if you focused less on top end development. So how do we, in your mind with your athlete, Zoe, how do you sprinkle in tempo work, uh, targeted lactic threshold training in order to help in a more balanced plan that includes both aerobic base building mm-hmm. um, and also, you know, work at higher intensities? And yeah. why do we work at higher intensities sometimes? Once again, like if you're going to be racing, um, you know, it's something that you do, you do need to have familiarity with those higher intensities. I, for my athletes, unless like I have Lionel doing a specific aerobic threshold training block, just cause we're kind of setting the stage for longer events down the road. And that was one energy system that I wanted to really drill down into and be like, all right, let's do six to eight weeks specifically focused on this energy system, uh, which is more productive in a highly trained athlete or like someone like Lionel who's been with me for like over a year so it's like you can really get more specific with these energy systems in the context of other athletes training I like to mix those into long runs when I'm further out from an event like if someone's training for a 50k or 50 miler I'll sprinkle in two by ten minutes at tempo three by five minutes at tempo kind of just different intensities so that you are edging into that energy system without becoming overly reliant on it and I also really like forcing people to get a little bit uncomfortable during their long runs because that is essentially like a way that you're able to get a little more bang for your buck without going further Um, I think of tempos and long runs as being like the physical equivalent of work smarter not harder so instead of running 20 miles at which point you might get like negative adaptations in terms of running economy and injury risk. If you just go a little bit harder for a few minutes during your long run, you're able to get some of those top end energy system adaptations while minimizing risk of injury. And you just don't have to be running for as long. So we're, we're making the engine bigger. I think also in these situations, the contrast between the time at intensity during the tempo and your easy effort 
after a few exposures makes your easy effort pace feel even more effortless mm -hmm. and more economical. Um, you know, that may be, at least in the short term, a more mental gain than it is an actual like physical adaptation. Um, but those things really, really matter when you go out to do longer events. So like with better trained athletes, you are able to handle longer tempos. And the thing about working on your lactic threshold system, you know, that energy system, particularly athletes with a pretty good base can start to benefit from that training. Um, and you can break down the tempos into smaller pieces. So it's easier for people, you know, it's hard to sustain 20 minutes at a one hour effort for many people. Those are hard workouts for me, um, or 30 or 40 minutes at one hour effort. That's very intense, but you can break those down into smaller pieces in order to still go for the same adaptation and get the same um, kind of benefit from the training. So there, there are really cool and interesting ways to do this if you're doing like a longer build. Um, like Zoe described. Anyways, it, the contrast there, it really helps. Um, so if you're going out and preparing for a 50K or a marathon, um, you know, your tempo effort is going to be a lot, it's going to be much more intense in your race effort, but it's going to help you feel way more comfortable when you're out there running easy. Mm -hmm. um, Tempos are a good way to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And it also, it helps because you're working at that intensity level, it does help with the shuttling of, of lactate, lactate as well as oxygen and the supply of blood to and from the muscles and those systems become more efficient and that works at easier efforts too. Um, that's something that you don't get at aerobic threshold or below, which mm -hmm. is very nice. Right. How about VO2 max, Zoe? Oh man, I love talking about VO2 max because I feel like it, uh, doesn't matter as much as people kind of think it. it's another one of those places where I like to do a little bit of like training science myth busting. Um, we have a lot of athletes ask if it's necessary coming into the program, if they need to get a VO2 max test, or if we need to know what their VO2 max is. And the good news is, is we absolutely don't care even at all. Um, it does not truly matter to us. Um, essentially your VO2 max is the maximum amount of oxygen that a person can use can use like period um it's expressed in milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute um so usually it's like the effort like think of it in terms of the maximum effort you could sustain for seven to eleven minutes um it's not very trainable it's actually mostly genetically determined so like you know especially in highly trained athletes like even if we did like a specialized focused vo2 intensity block um the better the athlete is, the less they will respond to that. Cause it's kind of one of those needles that's really hard to move. Whereas like economy is a needle that can move a whole heck of a lot in the context of a single training block and just an exponential amount within the context of like an athlete's training life. VO2 max, barely gonna budge um, because it is so genetically determined. Um, and so we don't really encourage people to go seek out that information cause it's just not that important. And we're not really looking to change it a significant amount. Um, and so it's not, it's not excessively important. We do try to target it um, with things like those really like top end strides with less recovery. Um, I'd love to know what kind of workouts you like to give your athletes to focus on VO2 max, um, because it is something we don't ignore in training, but we don't overemphasize it because it is not your destiny. People come into the program with varying VO2 maxes, um, just 
assuming that since we get like you know it's a real bouquet of humans there's going to be a whole variation in terms of like what everyone's vo2 max is and we don't use that as a training metric to base things on just because it's not super flexible not super meaningful but that doesn't mean we ignore it we just like to tell people that don't base like don't use it to like tell yourself a story that's not important if you go out and get your vo2 max tested we see that sometimes those athletes might be more likely to say like well this is just my vo2 max so i'm really not going to put my heart and soul into you know trying to make it better because that's just what it is so we only want people to find data that's going to be that's going to help tell them stories that are like productive and meaningful and i don't find vo2 max tests to be productive or meaningful in that way unless you just really have a ton of money that you want to spend having strangers watch you basically throw up into a oxygen mask on a treadmill. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. Um, that's quite the picture that you just painted for me <laughs> there. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think what this comes down to really is if we overemphasize what your kind of genetic potential is via, via VO2 max, it's gonna affect possibly your ability to believe in yourself and we know that these systems are highly trainable and your genetic potential via a VO2 max, you know, uh, all out test on a treadmill. Um, it's only one small piece of a bigger, much bigger picture. Um, so we really don't want to emphasize that too much. However, there are gains to be made by focusing on that system. Um, it's, it is movable especially for better trained athletes on, um, you know, it might not well, be it's as more movable. movable for less trainable for less it, it, formally trained athletes. Yes. And no, it really depends on, on the athlete, what they've been doing in their training specifically. Um, a lot of coaches who coach uh, kind of with a cycling mentality will do a lot like four to eight weeks of VO two max building to start out somebody's, training season. Um, it really depends on the coach and the methodology with, for me. And I think with us, um, I tend to use this training in the context of, of building economy, um, and, and specifically building turnover, which is helping the athlete get comfortable moving the legs really, really quickly, which is fundamental for building speed. Um, what kind of workouts do you use to promote that? Well, generally you use a two to one uh, work to rest ratio, but I kind of feel like for, for most athletes that that, I mean, technically you'd want to, and, and that, that kind of, that ratio really because comes that from allows cycling. You, with more rest, you're able to really click into that top end VO2 max effort. Well, no, because if the work is two to one, that means you have half oh, the rest of the work. Half the rest, okay. So I actually, I think that so can like be a, really risky for runners. Almost a Tabata style format. Exactly. I think that can be a little risky for runners because of the musculoskeletal aspect, the impact forces of running. Um, so generally, I don't do a ton of that unless I'm really working with an athlete who is really well-trained, um, who's got multiple years under their belt of running. Um, because I don't, I'm not trying to elicit an injury, right? Like the higher intensity of the work, the more adapted and the, the bigger foundation the athlete needs in order to absorb that work without getting an injury. Also, the higher intensity the work, the less amount of time we can spend on it before risking injury. So, you know, if we go into tempo or the VO2 max and above, we have to shorten the 
kind of um, the block of trainings very specifically in order to, to make sure that we're eliciting adaptation and not going over the edge where you could become at risk of injury. Um, for these kind of workouts, you know, I like one minute on, 30 seconds rest. Um, I think that that's appropriate. I've seen other coaches do, you know, three minutes on with a, a minute and a half rest or something. And I think three minutes is at maximal effort. You know, we're talking about 10 out of 10, way upwards of nine out of 10 effort on our perceived effort scale. I think those kind of uh, intervals are, are, are pretty intense, maybe too intense for runners. We're not on bikes. We have impact forces at play here. So I tend to stick to like uh, 10 by one by 30 seconds rest um, and maybe do two rounds of that. Um, I think the most intense that I do with my most evolved athletes is like 30 by 30 by 15. And that's like once, maybe once in a training block. <laughs> um, those are killer, but they really, so really help. <laughs> oh, I feel like I just went lactic hearing that. And oh. it's, and the point of it isn't necessarily to like elicit a big VO2 kind of like percentage increase, but more to force the athlete. And these work really well for athletes with huge aerobic engines but very little top end speed that these guys are 100 milers or 50 100k runners they can run at you know 10 minute mile pace for 10 hours and they're totally unfazed but they can't do a stride at five minutes pace which is i would you know that's for an athlete who, who's really good they should probably work on that top end a little bit because there's economy gains to be made. So in reinforcing that turnover over and over and over again really helps. You don't need that many sessions to do it. Um, you know, so uh, yeah, that's the context in which I use it. I use it pretty sparingly and only for people who are really well adapted because it's, it's pretty risky for runners to do long format um, bouts of high intensity. Another good way to do it that lowers impact forces is with hill strides. So you might do 30 seconds of steep hills, you know, at a 6% um, or ideally maybe like 8, 10 or 12% grade, because the steeper the grade, the much the you don't have to go as fast, you don't have to have the output levels in order to get to the high heart rate zones that we're trying to target with a workout like this. And the steeper it is, the lower the impact forces. So we're reducing the forces on the musculoskeletal system. Um, these can be really, really effective, especially for athletes who maybe are at risk for injury or you wanna you know, help them with their turnover and, and, and developing higher output levels to work on economy but you're, they haven't had a lot of this and they need to build that foundation. They need to build strength to elicit higher output levels. Um, so I like the steep hills with, you know, maybe equal parts um, of rest. So like a one-to-one, -one, which maybe isn't traditionally coming from the cycling world, the way to elicit, you know, VO2 max um, gains, but I think much more appropriate for a runner. Um, I'm, I'm always focused usually on having someone repeat the same high output level as much as they can, rather than to be doing it like in an ultra fatigue state where they're gonna be more at risk for injury. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I think that covers like the wonky section of today's rapid fire questions. <laughs> so 
Hopefully yeah. people aren't just like cross-eyed, like, oh my God, this was a mistake. Well, um, all of this stuff is available on the internet. And if you have questions, we're happy to, to give people resources. But, um, you know, reading into these things and trying to understand your training and what your what systems you're targeting and why and why you're only doing like two times this workout instead of four or eight. Um, you know, that kind of stuff is important. Some people like to know the why behind their training. And as coaches, um, obviously, we always want to be able to explain why to a very specific workout. Um, but I would encourage people to take some of this and, and go out and do your own research. There's a lot of good books on this. Uh, I guess that leads us to our top. <laughs> people have asked, what are your tra favorite training books? Yeah. Um, so I guess we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. cool. <laughs> I think the way I like to think of training, I think, you know, TJ and I will have different answers on this, which is amazing and why it's so great to have two very different coach people uh, on the same team. Um, two books that I read this year that I think really impacted how I think of training and just life in general are, what's up? I'm looking at our books. Oh, <laughs> it was a very quick head movement. Um, I thought there was like a bird in the house or something. I was thinking something. about a specific <laughs> book. It's not really a training book, but it's yeah. a book I like. Um, I was thinking of Grit by Angela Duckworth. This oh, is a yeah. book that we read together. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it does draw on a lot of research done with athletes, but it also draws on research done with Air Force cadets and concert pianists and chess masters. And it essentially is a book about how uh, hard work is the most important thing you can have in your life. And I would really recommend it to pretty much everyone because I feel like it really enabled me to understand and embrace the style of training that I do. Um, and not just, not just running training, but it also kind of helped me understand like how I can succeed in my career. And I'm always really drawn to books that draw parallels between like academic um, career and athletic success because that, you know, I like to think of things holistically and um, grit just really helped me conceptualize of like understanding that the people who succeed in anything are people who are able to essentially just like work hard and fail and work hard and fail and work hard and fail and just like accumulate years and years and years worth of work um, in order to get where they want to be. And, you know, it's, it's written by a psychologist. I think she is like based, I want to say Stanford, but I'm not totally sure about that. But it's a really, really amazing book that I think really helped me um, embrace training in totally new ways. And another book kind of in similar lines is Peak Performance by Steve Magnus and uh, Brad Stolberg. Brad Stolberg is a columnist at Outside Magazine. And um, also, uh, and Steve Magnus is like, a, he's like one of the most famous running coaches of all time. He also wrote The Science of Running, which is um, unlike a lot of similarly named books, actually a really, really great resource for coaches. Um, and I would really recommend that to people. I think Steve Magnus is just one of the most brilliant writers and coaches out there. Um, and peak performance is about how to get better at everything, basically using training methodology, like how to conceptualize of your workday in like in the same way that you periodize your training and you concentrate stress and then you concentrate rest, like adding that to your workday. Um, thinking of like how to use interval training to be a little bit more focused at work. Um, there's a lot in there about how to avoid multitasking and how to have a healthier relationship with technology, which I think are things that we're all um, 
Oh yeah, passion. James mentioned passion paradox, which is next on my list. I'm super stoked to read that too. But it's basically about like how to achieve peak performance in a lot of things. Um, whether you know, there's a lot of really great takeaways in there for running, and there's a lot of great takeaways in there for work, and there's a lot of great takeaways in there for life. And I think for me, um, as someone that sometimes struggles to balance things, it was a really meaningful read because it offers a lot of really great advice on like how to set boundaries, embrace rest, embrace like how to conceptualize of stress in healthier ways and how to like, in the way that I really succeed in training because I'm very coachable. Um, I'm a hard worker and I am very good at taking instructions from people. And so being able to try to apply some of those same training principles to like my work life or personal life um, was really helpful for me. So it's only kind of a training book. It's, it's a lot about how to use training principles to a make other parts of life a bit more manageable yeah that I, you you mentioned grit right this yes. is the grit by angela duckworth it it definitely uh is a book that should be read with uh peak performance because they touch on very similar principles um this is a great book about self-belief um as well because it's important to realize that you are not uh hard work makes the biggest difference of all um talent is great but a lot of talented people don't have the work ethic to ever utilize that talent um so being able to have grit perseverance to grind many of the most of those people those are the ingredients to being uh successful or to achieving whatever your goals are i like this book uh in conjunction with the biology of belief which is one of my favorite training books um, which explains why belief um, is so powerful and can trump things like your VO2 max. Um, yeah, given the choice between an athlete with a great VO2 max and an athlete with a lot of self-belief, I, yes. would, I, would, I would be Hard more scared work, to race the... Belief, yeah. those are the best things that you can have. Um, and then I think Ooh, we both we like both love this book. Uh, Endure by Alex Hutchinson, um, a great book about endurance, recovery. Um, gosh, there are so many topics covered in this book. Uh, fat also, adaptation versus carbohydrates. Uh, oh man, and this leads me to another, the, the recovery book that we read a long time ago. Gosh, that's a good read too. I think it's over here. I don't know where that is. Um, Who wrote that one? Christy Ashwanden. Yeah, so that's a great one. Another great one is called Good to Go, uh, The Science of Recovery by Christy Ashwanden. Um, I love, I mean, we're obviously huge on recovery. The thing I love about Good to, to Go is because it is mostly about recovery, but it's also a really interesting examination of sports science itself and like how to read scientific studies better, how to not extrapolate in ways that are counterproductive. Um, because like so many of the claims that like we all, it, it really helps you just decode bad science in the context of recovery, um, which I think is really, really cool and interesting. Like, you know, they, there's an entire chapter on just like all the BS that Tom Brady spews, uh, which is just like medicine for my soul. Um, you know, just like using like just bizarre claims that companies make, like, um, you know, basically like myth busting cryo saunas. There's an entire chapter about misinformation around icing soft tissue injuries and like how things get started and like become culturally accepted. And then we stop questioning them, like an examination of like, is stretching actually beneficial? Because there's zero studies that 
conclusively demonstrate that stretching prevents injury in a meaningful way. And there's like all these things that we hold to be true in sports and we just literally, like we don't fully have the evidence. Um, and this book is just like a really cool, meaningful way to kind of deconstruct that to help you become a more mindful consumer of news and science generally. Um, I think I think one of the things that I loved about Good to Go is out of every single recovery methodology that she investigated, and she's actually, she's a professional science writer. Uh, she writes for 538 and Runner's World. She's just like one of the most respected writers in the industry. And she's someone I've worked with previously and I just look up to her um, enormously. I actually have a really cool interview I did with her when I used to work in uh, public radio that I can share later, but literally the only thing that she ever found conclusive evidence in terms of it being demonst like demonstrably beneficial for recovery is sleep. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's an entire book about how like foam rolling, eh, stretching, eh, icing, eh, sleep two big thumbs up from science, like almost everything else. There's a lot of mixed evidence and a lot of mixed uh, and questionable research on, but it's, it's, it's mostly really cool and interesting because you start to understand how we like adopt beliefs that like aren't really founded in good data and are like just kind of not demonstrably true. And we I get really nerdy a, about uh, that. We should do a call on recovery. Ooh, um, I would love that. Yeah. And a novel that I like is, is uh, once a runner. It's a really great book about running the running journey. Um, highly recommend that. Uh, another great book on training principles and the journey is called Mastery, but I can't remember the author mm. on that. It's fairly old. That's got to be at least 20 or That was given to us. Old. One of our good friends is a professional rock climbing coach. And so like a lot of times we'll have discussions on like how to communicate better with athletes and like how to conceive of mastery and practice in our own lives. Um, and he passed on this book to us, and I think it was, yeah. it was super foundational. I'll put for, that in the notes. Yeah, it's for a really TJ. important book for anybody who is interested in improving over time. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Is that it? Um, the last question I got from an athlete was, "Is it okay if I don't want to run ultras?" Oh, well, obviously. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. We say that all the time. Yeah. Um, the distance does not determine the value of the run and it absolutely does not determine the value of the runner some of the best athletes on this team and on planet earth will never run an ultra in their lives and that is totally amazing you should only run distances that feel personally meaningful to you it's totally okay if that's not ultras it's in fact i just i mean i think once again like this is one of my kind of like meh things with like the trail running communities we tend to focus too much on distance rather than just like finding or assigning innate value to running generally. So whatever distance you want to pursue is amazing. Do not let distance define you as a runner. Yeah. Great. One mile all the way to 240. You can yeah. do whatever you want. Well, uh, we train people for, we've trained people <laughs> for literally both of those events. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Um, great. Well, actually, there is one more question. Oh, yeah. We could really make this a rapid fire Friday if we squeeze this we one really, last yeah. one in. Do it. I'll ask you. <laughs> uh, how long does it take to train for a 50K? 12 weeks. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> no notes. <laughs> um, 16, I mean, ideally. Yeah, 16 would be great. Um, and, you know, all of that depends on the background of the athlete, but I would usually say 12 to 16 weeks is a, is a great bet. Yeah depending on other things, but there's no hard and fast rules. <laughs> no. There's some mushy rules.
Oh, all right. All right. Cool. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, I hope you found this informative. It was a good exercise for us, uh, for sure. And we will post on YouTube. Hope everybody has yeah. a good weekend. There will be no call. Send us book recommendations. Yes. If you have if you have recommendations for books that you like, post them to Facebook or email them. We like to read and or listen. Audiobooks are, we love are big. Audiobooks. Um, Thanks, everybody. We're not having a call on Monday, so we will reconvene next uh, Friday. For Rapid Fire Friday, send questions. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks, everybody. Have Woo! a good weekend.